This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Before we get to the episode, I wanted to share an amazing event coming up very short here on January 8th and 9th. It's all about how to thrive in these transitioning times and reach new levels of growth, expression, and abundance. The Coptic Center is having a two-day workshop, and it'll have a 48-hour replay if you end up missing the presentations, but they have up to 19 presentations on January 8th and January 9th. These are going to be things we're going to discuss about how to create a better world, how to create prana, the journey of illusion versus reality, and how to just different individuals coming together to share some amazing uh, information on how to level up in your life in every aspect possible. Um, This is going to be a great workshop. I highly recommend to attend. If you're interested in about this and want to register or read more about it and register for the workshop, it is only $25. You can click in the show notes. I have a link there. Go there, click on it, and make sure you register before January uh, 8th. Look forward to seeing you guys there. Uh, I know it's going to be a great event. I appreciate y'all. Now back to the show. Hey everyone, Dr. Vic here, another episode on the Mindful Experiment. And this episode was an awesome interview I had uh, with Ron Friedman. And I love his book because it talks about 
decoding greatness. And I am all about decoding things, decoding, breaking things down, understanding why greatness exists. What's the purpose behind it? How do people achieve these levels? What's different for them versus someone else? And we had such a great conversation about that and so much more that I know you're going to find a ton of value in this episode. So make sure you sit back and uh, really take some time to listen in. And uh, because I promise you, you're going to get a lot of good content of our discussions that we had. But to break down a little bit about Ron, he's an award-winning psychologist who has served on the faculty of the University of Rochester and has consulted for political leaders, nonprofits, and many of the world's most recognized brands. Popular accounts of his research have appeared in major newspapers, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the Globe and Mail, the Guardian, as well as magazines such as Harvard Business Review and Psychology Today. Ron is the founder of Ignite 80, a learning and a development company that translates research into neuroscience, humans, physiology, and behavioral economics into practical strategies that help working professionals become healthier, happier, and more productive. His first book, The Best Place to Work, was selected as an Inc. Magazine Best Business Book of the Year. Uh, He brings it with his credentials. He's done it with his work. I know this is such a great episode. You're going to enjoy it. So with no further ado, here is Ron Friedman. Ron, welcome to the show. Great to be here. I'm excited to have you on. I love the name of your book, Decoding Success, Success, and I think that is uh, greatness. Sorry, sorry. Let me redo (laughs) it. Let's redo that whole thing. I was like, Decoding Success? No, it's the way you decode. Anyhow. All right, so let's redo. Um, Three, two, one. Ron, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Uh, I'm excited about having you on. I love the name of your book, Decoding Greatness, and I think um, it's something that you know, I know I thought success was a certain way and I had to do all this self-learning and hit many obstacles to really understand what greatness is and how do we, you know, what, is there a code to that or something along those lines and how to figure that out. So uh, I'm excited to dive deep with you on this and so much more. Yeah. I mean, it's a great topic and it's one that is relatable to all walks of life. No matter what you do, there's a way you could be doing it better. And that process is what we're going to be talking about today. So let's dive into, my, my listeners know I like to jump right into a story of how you got into what you're doing, what, um, you know, life has sometimes can be like a pinball effect where it bounces you around for a little bit before you find that, ah, this is what I'm going to do. So kind of curious to know, what's your story? How'd you get into what you're doing today? I started off in politics and I was interested when we started doing polling. I was like, wow, this is interesting. We're, we're, we're figuring out how people are making decisions, but it wasn't clear why they were voting the way they were voting. That led me to the path of psychology. And when I got into psychology, the thing that interested me was not related to polling per se, but it had to do with what makes people happy. And that led me to study with these two guys at the University of Rochester. Their names are Richard Ryan and Ed Deesty about human motivation. What is it? What are the factors that lead people to be healthier, happier, and more productive? And um, I studied with them. I got my PhD in social psychology. And then I went off and I, I worked in the corporate world. And uh, my job, I went back to polling. I, I, I was really interested in it. And I thought, okay, let me apply these principles and figure out why people are making the decisions they're making and how we can utilize psychological principles to change their opinions. And what I learned in that process was that there was this huge divide between all of the factors that we psychologists knew lead to lead to success and, and productivity and creativity and how most organizations were operating. 
most of the science was being ignored. That led me to write a book. That was the first book, not this one. My first book was called The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. And in that book, I summarized over a thousand academic journal articles. And I just basically translated them to plain English. So regardless if you were a manager or a CEO or even just someone starting out, you had access to the best science on how to create a great workplace and elevate your performance. But there was something missing in that book. And what was missing is that even within the best workplaces, there's a range of performance levels. Some people are top performers and others are not. And so in this book, Decoding Greatness, I was interested in what are the factors that differentiate the people who are working at the very top of their professions from everyone else? And what I discovered is that they're using a process that not a lot of people talk about, but a lot of people are using, especially at the top. And that process is reverse engineering. So let's break down reverse engineering. I mean, I understand the term just for the listeners in case they don't in explaining how does that look when you're reverse engineering uh, someone's path to greatness? Yeah. So let me let me just uh, take a step back and, and just share what I think the two main stories are about what we've been taught about success. So most of us throughout our lives, we've been told two major stories about how people achieve at the top of their profession. And those two stories are talent and practice. The first story, talent, this is the idea that we all are born with certain inner strengths and that the key to finding your greatness is just identifying a field that allows those strengths to shine. The second big story is that greatness comes from practice. And from this perspective, getting to the top just requires having the right practice regimen and then the discipline to do lots Lots and lots of hard work. Some people think it's 10,000 hours. But there's that third story that I discovered in writing this book. And it's one that an astonishing number of top performers, everyone from writers and artists to inventors and entrepreneurs are using for generations now. And that involves mastering reverse engineering. And reverse engineering simply means studying the best in a field and then working backward to figure out how they did it. So regardless of what field you're in, there are people in your field that you can look up to and say, that person is a top performer. Reverse engineering means having an analytical approach to breaking down how they became successful. So just to give you some concrete examples, you know, in Silicon Valley, the idea of reverse engineering is very well known. It, there is a very long history of coders deconstructing winning products to learn how they're made. It's how we got the personal computer and laptops and even the iPhone. But what's less well known is that reverse engineering also explains how writers like Stephen King and Malcolm Gladwell learned their craft and how painters like Pablo Picasso and Claude Monet became groundbreaking artists, and even how Judd Apatow, who's one of the most successful comedy writers of our generation, learned to write comedy. It, it's, it's all about finding the best works in a field and then working backward to figure out how they were created so that you can apply those insights to your work and elevate your skills in a faster way. I love that. And I, I know I've used a lot of reverse engineering because I in sports, it was like, okay, how's this guy do this person do what they do? And it's like, all right, what's 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 the things that they're doing? Let's look at all the mechanics. And for me, it was baseball. And I love how you bring up, you know, talent and practice and all that. And I know guys in sports who had those things, uh, but then they weren't at the top of the game. And it was always like, what are they doing? And, you know, and it was interesting to see, like, they didn't have that third piece to like, like for me, I would study in baseball, I would study the major leaguers and look at, okay, why is this person so successful? What do they do? What's the process like? And how do they do it? And then say, okay, if they're at that level playing it that way, well, I want to be at the same one. So I'm going to follow what they do and practice their systems to be able to achieve those levels. 
Yeah. And what I would say is like, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that talent and practice don't matter. Sure. If you've got a particular talent that allows you to master your field quickly, that's good for you, right? If you've got 10,000 hours to practice, that's fantastic. But the challenge is, I think most of us feel like, A, maybe we weren't born with that particular talent. We haven't found it yet. Or we just don't have 10,000 hours to master our field. Or worse yet, even if you spend 10,000 hours on mastering a particular skill, we're living in a world where skills are evolving so quickly that by the time you've, you're even halfway towards mastering that skill, it's now obsolete. There's, there's another problem that I would add to that, and that is that we assume that practice is the thing that's going to lead us to improve our skills. But, but the challenge is that, it, particularly in, in knowledge fields, you can't practice an idea that you've never considered. And so the best ideas don't emerge from hours of isolated practice. They're waiting to be found inside the work of masters, which is what reverse engineering allows you to do. Totally. I couldn't agree more because even some of the masters, they, uh, they practice so much. And sometimes like I always use like Michael Jordan as an example, because you, you look at him as a, from an athletic standpoint, he had talent. He had the, that, that raw talent there. But what he said, what I say, he is one of the best talented players we ever seen from a talent perspective. I, I would, I would say, no, I think there was other players that had more talent than him. Uh, but the way he looked at things and how he did it and how he practiced and everything else in the mix, I think that makes him one of the greatest, if not the greatest basketball player of all time. I may be biased because I'm from Chicago. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because we can have a debate about Michael Jordan as, as the best player. It, it's interesting because if you look at those old videos of him playing, he doesn't look like, you know, the Michael Jordan that I remember as a kid. And I think it's all about context to a certain extent where he was so much better than others in that era. But if you look at the players today and the field goal percentages, the number of three pointers, I mean, I don't know that he would be in the top 10 anymore. I don't know. Am I wrong? No, it's one of those things. That's a, that's a great question to look. I mean, the game has drastically changed since he was there. But then again, it's one of the things I look at from a mindset side and I'm always like, but then it's Michael Jordan, his mindset, he would figure something out. Like he's that guy who... Uh, I don't know. Have you ever have you seen the what is it now? The, the, the last, last dance. dance. Yeah, yeah. I've seen some of them, but you're right. He he did have a different perspective, and he had that curiosity to break to 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 uh, to solve the puzzle. And so yeah. it wasn't just about skill; it was about thinking. Yeah, because one of the things I remember in there, it was kind of fascinating where he goes and shoots, I think it was like 36 rounds of golf, and he has to go play a playoff game at the evening. He makes a bet that he'll, he'll score over 50 points that game. And I'm, and someone's like, how the heck are you going to do that? Like, you just did all this, and then you, you're you going to go play this game at night, and you're going to tell us you're going to score 50 points? Oh, that's definitely, you're not going to do that. And then somehow, some way, he does it. And it's just like, yeah, that's just, uh, it blows my mind. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> Maybe we got to decode some of that greatness and figure out that one. <laughs> you know what I will say, since we're on the topic of basketball, which is something that's uh, close to my heart as well, it is um, one of the stories in decoding greatness is about how Steve Kerr has transformed the, the uh, Golden State Warriors into a really uh, just a powerhouse of a team. They've had obviously some setbacks in recent years because of injuries. But uh, one of the things that he's done is that he um, shows highlights during halftime. And it's not the kind of highlights that you see on SportsCenter with like these great plays. He uh, is consistently telling his assistants during the game, clip that if there's a play that happens that he wants to show his team during halftime. And they're consistently reviewing 
previous plays to improve during the game. They're not just waiting until after the game to watch film. They're actually watching film during the game. And the the Golden State Warriors, historically, over the last decade, there's no team that's even close in terms of a performance increase in the third quarter relative to the rest of the game. They have outscored their, their opponents remarkably uh, in the third quarter. It's because they're learning from past experiences. And that insight of learning from past experiences is an action item that I talk about in this book as a way that we can all improve our skills. And, you know, we've all heard the term deliberate practice, the idea that if you practice in a certain way that focuses on your weaknesses, that'll improve your performance. Uh, What Steve Kerr is doing is actually an example of reflective practice, which is practicing in the past. And we can all use that approach to elevate our performance at work. There's research from the Harvard Business School that shows that if at the end of every workday, you just spend five minutes writing, actually, I think it's two minutes, write down something you learned today. That will improve your performance by up to 20%. And so reflective practice is a way we can all bridge the gap between our vision and our ability. If you want to get better at anything, start using reflective practice by journaling and then reading about some of the things that you learned in the past. Doing that consistently will help strengthen your memory for past insights, but also sharpen your thinking around things that you're learning in real time. That is so true in so many ways. We can definitely, uh, I 100% support that and, and recommend that. Now, when you're, when we're talking about, you know, decoding greatness and so forth, what is it about like, you know, some people may say, you know, well, you don't want to be another product of someone else. You don't want to copy someone else. You know, some, I've heard that before when I was studying people like find your own way, don't just do that. And I was like, yeah, but I want to learn what they're doing and then I'll be that. But how can that not be, uh, how can that be different from being another, I want to say a copycat, um, a duplicate of that person push, push, push me vic i like it like yeah ask this <laughs> ask it the hardest way possible i, I completely right. something that i've been thinking about you know and and was one of my concerns before i wrote this book is like wait a second am i what i'm advocating for is not replicating or copying what i'm advocating for is having a methodical approach for breaking down great examples and so just let, let me just uh take a step back and say wh- wh- what do i mean by like having a methodical approach to breaking this down so let me give you some examples of how people across different fields have been reverse engineering now for years and decades in some cases. In in the world of writing, nonfiction authors will often go right to the bibliography at the end of the book to find the sources that went into creating a book. That's something that's the little known secret about nonfiction authors is that we don't look necessarily right at like page one. We start a book by looking at the notes section in the back to see what went into it, because then that tells you where the author is getting their ideas. Uh, Chefs will often reverse engineer by taking uh, dishes to go. And then when they get home, they plate the uh, dish on a white plate and they spread it out. And sometimes they're using magnifying glasses to, to uh, a magnifying glass to identify the ingredients that went into creating that sauce. Photographers, what they'll do is when they get a photo that they want to deconstruct, they're not just looking at the object in the center of the image. What they're doing is they're looking at the length of the shadows that tells them the time of day that the image was shot and the location of the light source. So those are just some examples of how people are constantly trying to learn from examples to improve their skills. Now, you asked about copying, which I think is a great question. And this was one of my concerns, frankly, before I started writing this book is, am I just telling people to copy? And the answer is no. And and even if I was telling you to copy, uh, that would actually make you more creative and not less creative. And let me, let me tell you what that means. So 
there's research uh, that I talk about in this book out of the University of Tokyo that looks at what happens when you have people copy the work of someone else. And this is a study where they brought amateur artists into the lab and they divided them into two groups. The first group was asked to create original drawings for three days straight. The second group was asked to create original drawings on day one. On day two, they were asked to copy the work of an established artist. And then on day three, they were asked to resume their original works. And what the researchers were interested in was who's the most creative on the last day, the group that had con- had just done original works for three days straight, or the group that had paused to copy the work of an established artist. And then they brought in objective raters. And what they found is that it wasn't even close. The group that had paused to copy the work of an established artist was vastly more creative than the group that had done original works the entire time. And it wasn't simply by copying the style of the artist they copied on day two, they were going off in completely different directions. And it's because of what happens when we study works really closely. When you copy somebody else's work privately, right? Not releasing it under your name. We're talking about like for the purposes of education and trying to learn. When you copy someone else's work, what that forces you to do is you are, you, you, you're constantly comparing your instinctive inclinations of what you want to draw next or what you want to write next against the decisions of the master. And that process of comparing what you want to do against what they actually did opens your eyes up to new possibilities that are hidden in your work. And so far from making us derivative or just, you know, leading us down the path of not, of not creating original works here, copying in the interest of education actually improves your creativity. And so I, I think this is one of the myths about creativity is that we assume that, oh, if I want to be creative, I got to go into a dark room and close my eyes and not look at anybody else's work. It's the opposite. Creativity comes from combining ideas from different fields and different uh, areas in a new way. That's how creativity happens. And if, if what you're trying to do is be creative in isolation, you're going to have a really hard time. I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, sometimes if you're doing the, the reverse engineering on these things, you can, like you were saying, it, it gives you insight. You know, I, I would say awareness to seeing something different, how they do that. And then you're like, oh, cool. I didn't know that's how they got there. Okay, great. Now let me go continue with what I'm doing, add that to the mix. And now you create your own creativity. Is that kind of, the, that's the thought process behind it, correct? Yes. And creativity comes from combining ideas. And, you know, a great example of this, you know, just a very basic example, and I'll give you a, a more exciting example. A very basic example is that Steve Jobs didn't create the MP3 player and he didn't create the phone, but he combined the two in the form of an iPhone and it created almost a new industry, right? Then if you look at, uh, here's, here's a more exciting example, which is if you look at Lin-Manuel Miranda. Now, I don't know if you've had a chance to see in the heights it's on hbo now uh for because of covid it's not it's out in theaters but it's also been released on hbo in the heights was his first show the show before hamilton and if you watch that show first of the first thing you notice is that it bears a remarkable degree of similarity with hamilton but then the other thing you notice is that it really is like he didn't invent a completely new genre. What he did was he took the traditional successful proven Broadway formula And he layered on top of that salsa and rap. Now that was successful. It took some time. It wasn't a success out of the gate. It took some time to build, but then he added it one additional aspect that people weren't expecting. And that was American history. And that was Hamilton. And that broke out. And so again, what you see in the case of Lin-Manuel Miranda is not somebody who created a completely new art form, but rather somebody who understood what was working in different fields and combined them in a way that was unexpected. And that's what led to his success. 
I love that. I think that's uh, that's just a great example. And yeah, I mean, Steve Jobs, right? Taking just an MP3 player and uh, a phone, blending it, and look at look at now what happened. I mean, it's um, I totally agree with you on that. That creativity, different ideas, helps to stimulate that even more. Um, when we look at, you know, you talked about we talked about Steve Kerr, right? Steve Kerr doing the clips in the past, looking to see what can improve and so forth. Uh, I know you you brought up, you know, suggestion you talk about building skills is like, you know, create a scoreboard. What should we keep score of? What should we be looking for? What should we be, be monitoring to how we can improve in our life or what we're working on quickly? So uh, the scoreboard principle is one of the, one of the key insights in this book. And, and what I, when I talk about the scoreboard principle, here's what I mean. We have research showing that anything that you measure, you are likely to improve on. Measurement begets improvement. And there are all kinds of psychological reasons for why that's the case. Uh, evolutionarily, we are designed, we're not designed, but we are, uh, um, we're motivated to pay close attention to numbers. And it's because in the past, if you ignored numbers, you likely did not live. And it, here's how that here's how that plays out uh, in, in everyday life. In the past, if you weren't paying close attention to the size of a tribe, you didn't know who to ally with and who to steer clear of. The same is it true for your uh, for the people for the number of potential mates in your areas. You didn't pay close attention to the number of competitors, then you didn't know whether it was safe to leave your mate and move on to and, and go and explore. And so there's all kinds of evolutionary reasons why we pay close attention to numbers. Now numbers are almost like hypnotizing. If you think about it, this is why social media apps all have uh, scores, right? Like in, even in the case where it's not even a sports-based uh, app, there are always scores. It's because they know numbers are going to motivate you. When you're, when you see numbers, you're motivated to improve your numbers. And there's uh, research showing that even when the numbers are completely meaningless, you're going to be transfixed by them and you're going to be motivated to, to improve those numbers. They call it numerical nudging. In the, in the literature. And so we know from the research that if you want to improve at anything, create a metric for yourself that you can track. And so there's research showing if you want to lose weight, keep score of your daily calorie consumption. If you want to drink more water, keep score of your daily water intake. If you want to increase your focus at work, keep score of your uninterrupted minutes during the day. Those metrics are going to improve your performance. And so ultimately what it comes down to is if you want to improve at any particular skill, you need to identify what the metrics are that are important for you to keep track of and start monitoring them on a day-to-day basis. It's almost like reverse engineering yourself where you're trying to identify these are the, uh, are the elements that for me contribute to a meaningful day. And to the extent that you're monitoring them, you're going to make better decisions. And so if, if you want to, for example, uh, focus on uninterrupted minutes, we talked about that as a metric, the number of uninterrupted minutes that you have during the day. If you're tracking that, Vic, on a day-to-day basis, uh, chances are that is going to reduce your level of distraction. So if you keep track of, of how many uninterrupted minutes you have, you're not going to, for example, uh, fall to the temptation of looking at TikTok for 45 minutes after lunch because you know you have to report it on a timesheet. So just having that metric is going to lead you to make better decisions. So the first step to improving at anything is figure out what your metrics are and start tracking them. I love that. For an entrepreneur listening, what would be something, let's say, you know, finance is always something that, that you know, look, you know, I would, the, the old story saying goes, if uh, a good business person always has to keep a pulse on their numbers when it comes to finance or um, finances and, and profit. Um, 
would that be something also to tie into all this where, cause sometimes people say, don't look at it too much. Is there like a point of that? Or is that a whole different ball game in itself? Cause like looking at an undisrupted time, things like that, that could be nice check-ins and so forth. But when it yeah. comes to this part, is there same rules apply or is it a little different? Oh man, we could spend all day talking about metrics for entrepreneurs. I, one thing I will tell you, you know, I have, I have a bunch of coaching clients and, and some of them are used to work within organizations have become entrepreneurs. And one of the things you notice with entrepreneurs is that they are, they become very sensitive to time wasting meetings. And, you know, I think a lot of employees instinctively appreciate that meetings are not a good use of their time, but there's no like metric that they're held to that make that really abundantly clear and, and unavoidable as an insight. And so it almost, it's almost hard to get out of meetings if you're working within an organization. It feels like you're you're letting your team down if you say, I, I don't have time for this meeting or I can't attend this. I've got something more important to do. It seems like you're egotistical. But entrepreneurs, because they're so keen, keenly attuned to how important um, their financials are that they can clearly see that meetings are not contributing to their bottom line. And so they become really hesitant to, to agree to meetings. Uh, you asked about the dangers of metrics and there are plenty of dangers of metrics too. You know, I, I think that one of the challenges because metrics are so hypnotizing and so, um, focusing is that there is a danger of monitoring your numbers too closely. So for example, if you have some Facebook ads up, if you're going to be monitoring them from hour to hour, that's going to be a waste of your time. Far better to actually just look at those, you know, every few days or a week, or even better if you can assign someone else to keep you, uh, to, you know, create some rules for how they should monitor that account without involving you. And so you've got to be careful about what you're monitoring. And I think one of the ways of developing those metrics for an entrepreneur is having a mix of short-term and long-term objectives, because there's always a danger for all you're focused on is a short-term objective that you're going to be, um, you, you're not going to be, you're going to be ignoring the long-term goals. And it, it, the same is true, vice versa. If you're only looking at long-term objectives, you're going to be ignoring the short-term goals. And so you want to have a mix of short-term and long-term goals. So an example of a short-term goal is number of leads acquired, let's say, uh, today. Um, but then the long-term goal is how many products have I introduced into the market or what are my, how many revenue streams do I have? Uh, those that type of thinking, you, you want to you have a blend of the two if you're really developing a scoreboard that, that enables you to both make progress in the short-term and the long-term. But you know, one final thing I'll say on this, which is that your metrics should evolve every quarter. You, you're not going to just simply come up with five to 10 numbers that you're going to be tracking and have those for life. If you're growing or you're, if you're responding to changes in the market, they're going to evolve over time. And that's a good thing. And it also frees you up to say, look, these are the metrics that are important to me right now, but I'm not tied to them forever. I love that. Yeah. And that's something too, like I learned over my career, like getting too hung up on like short-term, like looking for indicators, like, are we moving? Are we, are we shifting gears? Are we growing? Where are we at? And it, it can be overwhelming because your focus, your energy is looking at the lack of where you're not. And right. then that creates more of, so it's one of those things where it was like, you know what, forget this. I'm going to space out the time. Here's my vision in the year, but here's once a month, I'll just do check-ins and I'm not going to be emotionally tied, tied to that. And I'll just look, okay, so here we are. All right, good. This is moving up in the right direction or ah, not doing as well. That's fine. We'll redirect maybe a little here. We'll make, we wouldn't make choices until the end of the quarter. Started making decisions on that too. So that way I wasn't making so many changes and not seeing things play out the way they needed to. 
Exactly right. And I give the example in Decoding Greatness of Wells Fargo and what happens when you're too successful on a metric. And that's exactly what happened in the case of Wells Fargo. I don't know how many of your, of, of your, of your listeners remember this story, but Wells Fargo had some, you know, a scandal about uh, a decade ago when they uh, got into trouble for opening up fake accounts. And that was uh, sparked by the fact that Wells Fargo's management team focused everyone in the organization on a single metric. And that metric was the number of accounts opened by a, a particular customer. It started because they discovered that the most profitable customers had multiple accounts. So they decided, okay, we're going to have all of our customers open multiple accounts. We're going to incentivize our salespeople to ensure that this happens. And there was so much pressure on the salespeople to make that happen that they ended up alienating their customers. And in many cases, opening up fake accounts in order to meet the quotas. And it was all because they had that one metric of how many accounts do our customers have. It, it illustrates the, the power of these metrics. When you have a metric and they are going to be motivating, but the problem is unless you have a counter metric, a metric that tells you what happens if I'm too successful on that one metric, you're going to go off the rails. And so in the case of Wells Fargo, if they had a counter metric of something along the lines of how many of our customers feel pressured to, uh, by our salespeople, that counter metric would have informed them that they're being too successful on the metric. So not only do you want a mix of short and long-term goals on your metric sheet, you also want to identify a counter metric. So what if I'm too successful on this goal? What would be the downside? So in your case, Vic, let's say, I don't know, you want... Um, you want a, a lot of uh, reviews on, on your podcast. Uh, let's say you're, you're, you're motivating everybody who's listening to leave reviews. That th there could be a problem with that, where which is like your listeners feel harassed or like that that you're getting a lot of reviews, but they're not necessarily people who you want to target, or they're not necessarily positive reviews. That that's or, that's an example of how focusing on a particular goal can actually lead you astray. Totally can see that. Um, when it comes to sometimes visualizing, visualizing success, right? Um, some of the things I've heard this gazillions of times, I've even looked into the research of it and so forth. Uh, you found that not, it does not only just not work, but also less likely to succeed. Let's, let's dive into why that is. And then what can we do to level up and, and succeed in, in ways we desire? Yeah. So, so visualizing success, something we, we hear a lot, particularly on the internet is like, if you want to be successful, visualize it. We hear it from self-help gurus, but it's not just the folks online. It's also, you know, actually successful people, people like Jim Carrey. This, I don't know if, how many folks have heard this story, but uh, about 10 years before he got Dumb and Dumber, which was his breakthrough film, Jim Carrey was a struggling uh, actor. And he uh, thought, you know, I'm going to start visualizing success. So he wrote himself a check for $10 million. Uh, and in the memo, he wrote acting services rendered. And so he was visualizing that one day he would actually make this money. And in fact, for Dumb and Dumber, he got about $10 million. And so he was on Oprah and it, you know, it, was all, it led to a flood of articles about visualizing success. But what the research shows is that not only is visualizing success ineffective, it can actually make you worse at your desired goal. So for all those, you know, for all, every Jim Carrey, how many actors are there out there who also wrote themselves a massive check and didn't get to cash it? Be and we've never heard of them because unemployed actors don't make it on Oprah, right? And so here's what the research shows. And this is a study out of UCLA that divided over 100 students into three groups. These are uh, intro to psychology students. They had three groups, 
one group was asked, this is before the midterm, we want you to visualize get, getting a really good score on the midterm. The second group was asked to visualize themselves studying for the midterm. And the third group was asked, just keep track of how many hours you kept studying for, the, for this midterm. And at the, at the end, they looked at the midterm scores. And what they found was that the group that visualized studying did best out of those three groups. But compared to the group that just tracked their hours, the group that visualized success did the worst out of all three groups. And so the question is why? And it's because when we visualize success, the emotional payoff we experience in the short term when we see ourselves succeeding diminishes our appetite for doing the work necessary to be successful. So we're temporarily sated. We feel great. We get that bump, that emotional high. Yeah, I can see that happening for me. And then we don't do the work. But in contrast, if you visualize yourself uh, doing the work necessary to be successful, what that does is it forces you to think about where am I going to study? Where am I going to put my phone? What do I need to have with me? So now you're front-loading decisions, which actually improves your chances of doing the work necessary to be successful. So it's not like, so, cause I would say like even looking at from just like visualizing the success of that, I agree. It will take away some of that reward effect from it. And, and sometimes it could also be too, um, sometimes when we think, oh, I can, I can do that. I can, I could, or I want to get to that level. And, and if there's a lack mentality, um, no matter what they do, they're not going to get there because of that lack mentality it built in. Um, cause I've read some other power, like some visualizations, you know, my background's in chiropractic. So like looking at health and they did studies on, where they look at an individual who just visualizes working out, like in their head, doing the work, just acting, feeling the muscles act like they're firing. You're not moving their arms or anything, but they're just feeling like the muscles are firing, stimulating that nervous system to do it. And then they had other people do the work and it was just like curling bicep curls. And they tested out, I believe it was a month. And then they looked and they checked that muscle size, growth, strength, and all that. And what was fascinating about it was that those who did the work got 28% growth. Those who didn't get the work got 23% growth. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually right. In, in, in fact, in, in Decoding Greatness, I talk about a study that shows that if you're visualizing yourself uh, doing uh, the practice or, you know, for example, if, if you're a public speaker and you visualize yourself giving the speech, what the research shows is visualization uh, allows you to cut back on your actual practice in half and not see any loss in performance. And it's because again, you're, you're getting that emotional preview, you're seeing yourself, you're anticipating obstacles and you're better prepared to take action. Yeah. And I think that's where that's that, that I can, I can align with a hundred percent. Cause I I've practiced visualization for quite some time, even like in, in, I'll go back to sports. It's an easy one to relate to. Uh, and it's like when you're, I would see myself before a game, like managing the pitch or I'm about the batter's box. I'm, you know, a lot of batters like will try to get their timing down with the pitcher. So they're mm -hmm. always like just check swinging when the pitch is coming so they can get the time down. And for me, I just be looking, sitting there imaging in my head and, and sometimes have my eyes closed and just be like hearing like the, the pitch hit the catcher's mitt. So I'm picking up on sounds mm -hmm. and I would just visualize myself hitting the ball. Didn't have to be a home run. Didn't have to be anything like that. I just wanted to hit the ball. And, uh, and it worked when I started practicing this later in my career, uh, it started to work and reward me very handsomely. Yeah. It's a difference between visualizing action versus visualizing success. And that's the, that's the difference. And so you want to see what you're doing sounds amazing. It's the difference between anticipating and preparing and hitting the pitch and just trotting around the bases.
because you hit a home run. That's not going to help you. In fact, that's going to make you worse because now not only are you not prepared to take action when time comes, it, um, it, it prevents you from actually wanting to practice because now you've already gotten the emotional payoff of feeling like you've scored. Yeah, I like that distinction there. That uh, definitely, uh, for those listening, way to shift it around a little bit here. Um, you also talk a little bit about skills, you know, when it comes to practicing makes us worse. I'm curious to know, you know, why is that? And then how can we prove our practice? Because, you know, we've always been told practice makes perfect or practice makes permanence. How, what, what can we do to, to improve the way we practice? Oh man, we could talk about this for a while, but what I'll say, you know, to keep it short is that our brain is constantly working to minimize effort and free up our attention. So this is why you you can daydream when you're driving a car or brushing your teeth. And the more you repeat a task, the less you have to think about it. Uh, And that process is called automaticity. And normally it's a great thing. The idea that you don't have to think about something and you can actually execute it effectively is fantastic, except when you're trying to improve your skills. And it's because improvement requires you to pay close attention to the connection between your performance and the outcomes. And so if you're simply going through the motions, you're not going to improve. And so the solution, how do you get yourself to pay attention is to to create a situation that feels new in some way. So you can do that a couple of different ways. You can do it by dialing up the pressure to, in practice. So for example, you know, we talked about baseball. You might want to, for example, increase the speed of the pitch. If you're in the batting cage, that'll get you to pay closer attention. Uh, you can practice in a new location. That's another way of getting yourself to pay attention. And the third approach, which is one of my favorites, is using cross-training. And so a great example of this, and by the way, just to define cross-training, it's mastering a related activity in an adjacent field. So a great example of this is football players, a, a, a surprising number of them, including, you know, you probably remember Herschel Walker they do ballet in the off season. And it's because ballet requires balance and agility and speed. All of those same skills are required when you're playing football. And so that is an approach we can all use in our work. The, the, the key is to identify what's a skill that you need to improve on that you could also get better at by doing something completely different that might be fun. So in the case of leadership, at work, for example, a surprising number of executives are now doing improv comedy classes. And it's not because they want to be funny, but because improv comedy uh, requires you to, to have to show mindful presence and uh, to anticipate what is going to happen next. And those activities are, are very critical when you're trying to you know, perform better in meetings and with clients. And so that's a great example of how you can improve through practice, but doing something that's completely different that will push you to learn the skills you need to learn to succeed. I love that. Yeah, I remember you brought some memories back and you said Herschel Walker and I was like, cross training. I'm like, what is he talking about? And then he said ballet. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> You know, a lot of these football players now they're playing Madden in the off season and Madden is, is a game that, you know, the, the, the John Madden football on, on uh, Xbox or uh, PlayStation, it forces you to anticipate plays in advance. It's a, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it, but obviously they're not physically playing football. So it's a way of improving your skills by doing something different. Uh, they're also taking um, uh, martial arts classes because it's, it's that uh, hand positioning and, and uh, eye co- hand-eye coordination, all of those are transferable skills to football. And so the same is true for us. You know, another example I bring up in, in Decoding Greatness is John Stewart. Uh, the, uh, he, I guess he wasn't the original Daily Show host, but one of the one of the, the best-known Daily Show hosts, probably, I think it's safe to say. 
And when he wasn't writing for The Daily Show, he was doing crossword puzzles. And crossword puzzles force you to think about related associations that are unexpected. And that is also the key to writing good comedy is to, to have surprising punchlines. And so uh, that's another great example of uh, cross training. And it's an approach that we can all use when we're thinking about our hobbies. So it's what, can, what skill do I need to improve and what's a related activity that I can do? So you know, if you're someone who, for example, is a salesperson, you get a little anxious doing those presentations, consider doing some karaoke on the weekends. That's a, that's a way that'll force you to get on uh, the edge of your comfort zone. And the better you get at that, the better you'll probably get at delivering, at, at, at establishing your poise when you're delivering those presentations. It'll get you out of your comfort zone and have fun with it in the process because you're not that that mistake or whatever you may do there in karaoke is not really going to you know mess things up as much. And it'll make you a little better when you're practicing that speech or whatever it may be. Exactly right. I like that thinking. So we've talked a lot about the book, Ron. I want to be able to give the listeners a chance. Where can they follow you, connect with you, get a hold of the book? Where's it had access to and all that good stuff? Best place to learn more about the book is decodinggreatnessbook.com. And the reason I mentioned that website is you can buy the book anywhere, but if you share your receipt with us on decodinggreatnessbook.com, we will send you a free course on how to apply reverse engineering to your field. Uh, and if you're interested in learning about, more about me, the best place to go is ignite80.com. That's my company's website. And the reason it's called Ignite80 is because over 80% of employees are not fully engaged at work. And the mission of Ignite80 is to teach leaders science-based strategies for creating happier, healthier, more productive workplaces. Ron, this was a joy having you on and uh, getting to know the work that you're doing. I greatly appreciate it. I love the, the tips you shared here with the listeners. I think that's going to help everyone level up and be able to decode some greatness, decode greatness even better. So appreciate you. Thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Vic. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. And until next time, keep rocking and rolling. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. And until next time, keep rocking and rolling.